Calgary, a sprawling obsession. Episode 2, A Square Meter of Ground. In its 10-year biodiversity strategic plan, published in 2014, the administration of the city of Calgary makes the following statement. Calgary has always been defined in part by its natural environment. Historically, the city occupied frontier lands with a high level of biodiversity where a rich natural resource base offered economic opportunity. Today, Calgarians and visitors cherish a contemporary portrait of a city of trees, rivers, wildlife, prairie grasslands and parks. However, like many other North American cities that experienced rapid growth in the post-World War II era, our city has expanded into surrounding lands, sometimes without taking the value of nature and its services into account. It is forecast that Calgary will grow in size and double in population over the next 60 years from its current 1.2 million residents. How we incorporate this demand is both a development choice and an environmental choice. We need to accommodate growth, we also need to protect nature. As a city, we can make balanced choices. In the process of urbanization, we can place value on nature solely as a land bank for development, or we can build communities that respond to nature, that protect ecological networks and build natural processes into what we create. Developing a city does not have to happen at odds with ecological conservation. At first glance, this sounds like a reasonable approach to the question of development and management of natural areas, as well as a realistic assessment of the history of development in Calgary. Therefore, somebody who would read this would be under the impression that the administration of the city of Calgary is taking the full measure of the importance of preserving biodiversity when planning the evolution of the city. But as we saw in our previous episode, municipal policies are developed mainly from the point of view of accounting for population growth, as long as it is cheap in the short term, attracts private investment, and creates new sources of income through local taxes for the city. This is clearly demonstrated by the fact that the size of the developed area of the city keeps growing at a regular rhythm since the 50s, and shows no sign of slowing down as we saw with the recent approval of five new communities in September of 2022. However, in the context of those approvals, the particular case of Ricardo Ranch, in the southeast of the city, was the occasion for an important discussion surrounding the impact of urban sprawl on biodiversity in Calgary. This 570 hectares area is one of the last intact riparian zone in Calgary. Riparian zones designate areas located alongside rivers and can include a wide variety of ecosystems, such as prairies, forests, or wetlands. In our case, this is the latter one that can be found, and as several environmental advocates pointed out during the debates, it constitutes an important source of biodiversity with some species living exclusively in this type of humid areas, or some using them for nesting. But far from properly measuring the impact that the construction activities would have on this area, 
developers asked for some of the rules to be relaxed. For example, the one requiring a 1000 meter buffer between development activities and a nesting area for the great blue heron. In the word of the area structure plan from the city of Calgary itself, this nesting colony is considered regionally uncommon and unique. The proximity to the great blue heron colony, along with the variety of habitat potential this area provides, results in a high environmental significance ranking. This is only one example, among the dozens of other animal and bird species that can be found in this area. And this is only regarding a few hectares of land, compared to the hundreds of square kilometers of natural areas that have been turned into new communities over the past decades. In the City of Calgary's 2014 Biodiversity Report, released as part of the signature of the Durban Commitment, we learn that 27 species of plants mosses and lichens that were observed in Calgary until year 2000 have disappeared within the limits of the city. And the Parks and Recreation Department indicates that 90% of the wetlands found before the birth of Calgary have been lost to development. When discussing biodiversity loss in Alberta, there are many issues that come to mind, such as coal mining on the eastern slopes of the Rocky Mountains, the privatization of provincial parks, or the protection of native trouts. In this episode, we will see that urban sprawl is another important issue to consider if we want to create efficient conservation strategies in Calgary and get a better understanding of what the lack of strong policies has costed to Calgarians so far. But just as in the previous episode, we need to introduce a few concepts before digging deeper into this question. One of the ideas that is important to understand when discussing about biodiversity is the notion of natural regions. A natural region is an area characterized by a specific geographic location that is associated with a certain number of factors. The landform, which describes if we are in a mountain, a plain or something in between. The hydrology, which indicates the availability of water and under which form the geology, which describes the nature of the bedrock, which in turn affects the type of soil, the climate, and finally the animal and vegetal species that are encountered. Among the six natural regions that can be found in Alberta, we need to focus on two of them in order to better understand the question of biodiversity in Calgary, the parkland natural region and the grassland natural region. The reason is that Calgary has the distinction of being located exactly at the intersection of these two regions, with the parkland on the west side and the grassland on the east side. In order to dig deeper on this question, I sat down with Chris Menderson, a longtime biologist and former member of the park department for the city. He is very knowledgeable about ecological issues in Calgary, and at first, I wanted to try to understand the mechanisms that made Calgary the meeting point of those two ecosystems. 
Calgary is on the edge of the foothills. Um, and if you think about it, um, anybody that's lived for any period of time knows that Northwest Calgary can have very different weather from Southeast Calgary on the same day. It can be snowing in Tuscany and it can be dry and sunny in, you know, in mahogany, for example. Some of the things that influence that is elevation. West Calgary is, is higher. Um, there's, there's, um, you know, you think about Springbank, Pascapoo slopes, all those sorts of areas. So they tend to be a little bit wetter. They catch, uh, precipitation and things like that. So what you see is you see, um, uh, plants grow differently and, or different plants grow in different areas. So West Calgary, the parkland is, is, um, Typically, what you see is is a mix of aspens, uh, aspen forest, and grassland, uh, and it, it's it's um, you know it, it's drier than the the boreal forest or the 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 foothills, you know, the forests in the Rocky Mountains where there is enough moisture to support you know fully forested areas. Here, it's semi-arid um, and verging on semi-arid, so you get these patchy distribution. Historically, you would see uh, Aspen centered around wetlands and low depressional areas and things like that. To me, it just really adds to the richness of this, this, of the city of Calgary because of that, that juxtaposition of the two. You can further define that a little bit more. Like the parkland is both what they call the central parkland that's north of us around Red Deer. And then there's a foothills parkland and you see some very unique plant communities in the northwest of the city that you don't see anywhere else. And in fact, some of them are considered to be rare in the province. Uh, and, and they're, they're under threat both from development within the city of Calgary, but also within, um, uh, Rocky View to the northwest. We're losing these really unique kettle, uh, wetland, aspen, parkland complexes. I see. And so, since you just mentioned the Parkland Natural Region, how do biologists describe it? What are its characteristics so that the listeners can have a better idea? So, the, the Parkland Region, um, sort of, in my view, it sort of sits between the prairies in the south and the east of the province um, and the boreal forest to the north. And so, the transition... Um, starts, you know, a little bit north of Calgary and continues up into Edmonton, um, and, and a little bit further north. And by the time you're a little bit past Edmonton or a little bit to the east of Edmonton, you're into almost continuous forest. And that's, that's the, the, um, the defining characteristic of the parkland is you're seeing patchy open space and aspen forest on, on the landscape. Um, one of the best ways to see it is if you're driving on Highway 9, which is east of Calgary, and you go north towards the community of Stetler. And for the first part of the drive, you are in Prairie. And there's one point I, I always recall, you come over a hill and all of a sudden you start to see trees. And with each hill you go over, the forest gets bigger and bigger. And that to me is the true parkland area. Calgary has a bit of it uh, on the west side because of the influence of the Rocky Mountains. Uh, and we have more moisture as a result of, of the montane influence from that area. Um, and so, so that's that patchy distribution. I believe the parkland f is, I think it's, there's not a, a good analog for anywhere else in, in the world, um, quite like uh, what we have here. 
but probably the closest might be what is termed in other places savanna forest, for example, where you have widely interspersed trees. Not quite the same, but it's it's similar ecological conditions. Um, you know, you might see that in um, eastern. Europe, for example, uh, the Ukraine, those sorts of areas, which actually have very similar soils and things like that. As you said, here in, in Calgary, we are on the edge of um, grassland and parkland. This is Katie Morrison. She is a biologist as well, but she is also the current executive director of the Southern Alberta chapter of the Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society and therefore well acquainted with all the conservation issues in Alberta. Grassland is that is that prairie, those prairie ecosystems that would have covered a lot of our agricultural areas, a lot of our urban areas, uh, pre-colonization. They're, they're really cool. I think they're an underappreciated ecosystem. I think we often think about, uh, you know, big forests and, and these things as, as awe-inspiring. But with grasslands, I actually say that you need to sort of Honey, I shrunk the kids them and 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 look look down on the ground and and there's such a diversity of species, such a value in in soil and and carbon sequestration uh, and wildlife. The and the grassland natural region is home to a lot of our threatened and endangered species or species at risk. And so, regarding this natural region, you mentioned the fact that, for example, if you would take a non-specialist to see a typical grassland and ask them to describe what they see, they would probably answer, there's nothing. So there are several reasons to decide that an area is worth being protected or not. But do you believe that the fact that this type of region is less spectacular than, let's say, the Rockies, uh, do, do you think that it plays a role in explaining the low percentage of protected area within the grassland region? Yeah, it's certainly harder to get people excited about grassland protection. Um, because it, it doesn't seem as as big and sexy, but I think there's there's also some other other factors. You know, because our grassland regions are such uh, rich soils, or a lot of them are rich soils, and have been converted to agriculture over over the history of settlement. They are also have really high value for other pieces. You know, food production, which is obviously important. And they're also a lot of private land. So because of that agricultural history. A lot of the grasslands is private land, which does create a, a different model for conservation, where it is really around private stewardship rather than a public stewardship of those areas. We certainly have some public grasslands left, and I think there's a few barriers. Certainly, the area, the idea that not a lot of people go to visit grasslands, and, and so they don't, they drive past them, as you say, they might think, oh, there's nothing there, because it does take that time to understand and become more intimate with an area to see the, the wonders of the grassland. But they also do other have other land uses on them that it, that are quite entrenched and in some ways help support the maintenance of the grasslands, but are less compatible with having people, you know, a tourism type sector on grasslands. So a lot of our public grasslands are, are leased lands. They're um, leased to cattle ranchers to, to run cattle, which in a lot of cases actually does help maintain the grassland, but isn't necessarily as compatible with all types of recreational activity. There's some resistance on sort of protecting something that might draw people to it. And the folks who are currently the stewards of those areas are, are not super keen on that idea.
I think grassland habitat prairies are some of the most beautiful landscapes we have uh, in the province. Um, they're very difficult to protect. Um, within what what is done, you know, certainly what I did at, at the the city, um, there's almost no tools to protect uh, native prairie. You know, and I think in the in the broader context, um, the prairie ecosystem is one of the most endangered ecosystems in Canada because it is uh, so readily converted to agriculture. And and I think what you're seeing now is sort of that double whammy of agricultural conversion plus urban development eliminating a lot of the, the this habitat. One of the things I most often enjoyed was to go to a place like Nose Hill or Haskane Park, which is another park with some some gorgeous uh, fescue prairie on it, was to take people who who may not have seen the difference or understood the difference between uh, native prairie and tame pasture, and to just spend a little time, take a square meter of of, of ground, and in the spring when things are flowering, where you can count you know, 10, 20, 30 different species of plants growing within that small area and then compare it to non-native where you might have two or three. Just when people slow down and look at the tremendous diversity that you see in in such a, an understated ecosystem, um, that to me says how, but how valuable they are and how important they are, um, but very tough to protect. The reality is that both the grassland and parkland regions are the two least protected regions in Alberta. Indeed, while representing about 14% of the province for the grassland and 9% for the parkland, only about 1% of both regions is protected. In comparison, 60% of the Alberta side of the Rocky Mountains is protected, while only representing 7% of the province. This is not to say that the mountains attract more attention than what they deserve. However, the ecological importance of some ecosystems is not as obvious as others, especially with the rise of ecotourism that attracts millions of visitors to the Rocky Mountains every year and make more and more people fall in love with this incredible part of Alberta. The fact that the grasslands and parklands are less spectacular means that more work is necessary to raise awareness and advocate for more protection, especially when it enters in conflicts with other economic activities, as Katie Morrison pointed out. But this work is as essential as for any other ecosystem. The grassland and parkland regions are host to numerous endangered animal species in Canada and include respectively 25 and 20% of rare vascular plant species from Alberta. The Alberta Wilderness Association estimates that 80% of the native prairie landscape and 95% of the parkland natural vegetation has been replaced by other land uses in the province. One of the things we did in 2014 is we produced uh, this document, so it was a biodiversity report of the city of Calgary. It's, it's on the um, city of Calgary's website. One of the things that uh, you'll find in one of the appendices is a um, survey of um, 
birds, mammals, fish, vascular and non-vascular plants in the city of Calgary. And I, I sort of had a quick look at what was there. And there's, I think, about 365 species of birds and about 70, 70 of those identified were uh, at some level of risk. Um, yeah. And so if you think about what that would mean, it's things like trumpeter swans, uh, whooping cranes, which are migrants, which are an endangered species, though recovering. Uh, they're not year round residents, but they are found here in the city of Calgary. There's about 10 out of 50 odd mammals, uh, are considered sensitive in some form. Um, you know, and, uh, with our plants, much less well known, but there's about 850, possibly more species of vascular plants in the, in the city. 30 or 40, I think 50 of those are, have been listed in some capacity as being sensitive. So, so there are lots. Um, it, it's, it's a somewhat more complex issue though. Um, the bank swallows are federally protected and so get a lot of prominence. There's a requirement for recovery under the Federal Species at Risk Act and the corresponding Provincial Wildlife Act. Um, but when I think about other species that are notable, 30 years ago, we used to have burrowing owls in the city of Calgary, I believe it was about 30 years ago. And that is sort of a classic prairie uh, predator bird um, that his its range has contracted very very quickly uh, alarmingly so I would say and is restricted in in Alberta to around the Brooks Medicine Hat area those are gone we don't see them anymore in a lot of cases I I think you know there, there's there's the ones that are endangered that have some prominence that that are worthy of attention but it's the other ones that are maybe not so rare yet are still disappearing that I think about uh, as well. One is is another uh, bird of the prairies, the western meadowlark, uh, which has a gorgeous song, um, is slowly but surely disappearing from from uh, Calgary. I don't think it's at risk in any, in any way in the province because it's abundant, but it's gone from the city. Um, and it's one of those species that does not do well um, around human development. And as a result, it's gone. Um, and, and those are the things I think more about is how these systems change with urban development and, and some species benefit, others don't. Black-billed magpies do really well in cities. They're not rare at all. Um, they're adapted really well, but, you know, for every one of those generalists like white-tailed deer or, um, um, you know, hares and things like that, there are so many others that go that we don't almost notice. Um, one really interesting one that came up a couple of years ago um, is an insect. And, and again, that's a group we know very little about. We, we don't have good um, information about them. Was uh, We have a federally endangered uh, bumblebee here in the city of Calgary called the gypsy cuckoo bumblebee. It's, a, it's actually a parasite. Parasitizes other species of bumblebee. It was found um, by an entomologist that was doing some work with with us um, in a, a restoration area in South Calgary. It turns out this thing was surviving quite well on the edge of Fish Creek Park um, that we didn't even know about. Um, you know, and in fact, Calgary is is um, center of biodiversity for bumblebees. We have over two hundred species in the city limits. Those are the ones that. 
can adapt and do well sometimes. There are other species um, that that can adapt to urban environments. This one seems to be doing okay, but its fate is something we don't even really pay that much attention to. Uh, you don't see a lot of attention being paid to those small, really important elements of our ecosystems uh, as much as birds and mammals and things like that. So now that we have an idea about what can be typically found in the vicinity of Calgary, I mean, it's just an overview, and I invite our listeners to go to see it for themselves. It's really close, and there's a lot of groups that organize nature walks. So now I wanted to ask you about the way we can include nature in our cities and the invisible costs that are associated with allowing more development within natural areas. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple a couple pieces. The first piece is I don't think that cities and biodiversity necessarily have to be mutually exclusive. I think we have created cities such that they are. And I think for a long time, we've thought about cities in that way. You know, there's nature over there and then there's cities and cities are for people and nature are for wildlife and plants and, and all of those things. And so we haven't designed our cities to be inclusive of nature and be inclusive of biodiversity, but that doesn't mean we can't or or shouldn't be. And so when we make a lot of these decisions in Calgary, including, and because Calgary is quite flat in that prairie landscape, we can, from a perspective of growth, we can just keep growing because we're not constrained by water on all sides or, you know, I know those place things that some cities are, but we don't consider the changes to the natural environment from building new communities. And there isn't the consideration of building a, around nature um, to make our cities more, more strong in biodiversity. There's a propensity to just sort of expand, not think about what we're expanding into or how to design to make sure we're conserving at the same time. And the thing is that when we make the decision to keep an ecosystem the way it is instead of using it for development, there are actually some benefits for us. It might not fit the framework that is used to assess development projects, but we as Calgarian also benefit from preserving thriving ecosystems. Uh, is that correct? Yeah, and in incorporating those natural spaces within our communities as well. And I think there are, I mean, one of those is it's also important in a landscape scale to look at where that city lies and what moves needs to move across that landscape and how, how the city impedes or facilitates wildlife movement or genetic movement of species across that landscape. But I think there's also a really important social value to having nature at our doorstep, so to speak. You know, we've seen in the last few years, even more so than normal, um, as people were sort of stuck inside, this innate need to connect with nature and, and get outside and experience and learn about nature. And I think we often think of that as, you know, driving out to Kananaskis country or going to the national parks, which are amazing experiences. But we can also have some of those nature connection experiences right down the street if we leave some of those places natural within the city. And so I, th I think it allows more nature connection and, and more learning and people being able to get out in nature, but also increases or, or decreases our impact by experiencing nature. So when we drive out to Kananaskis, we're using fuels, you know, we're, we're going out there, we might be having an impact on the land by our presence or disturbing wildlife. I'm not saying those things are bad. I love to go out and hike in, in wild areas. But if we're all out there all at once, that does have an impact. If we can have some of those places within the cities, 
it, it actually decreases our overall impact on the things we're trying to conserve. Living in a concrete jungle downtown or in the suburbs with well-groomed lawns can lead to think that there is not much to discuss in terms of biodiversity within Calgary. However, Calgary's 2014 biodiversity report indicates that approximately 950 species of plants and 450 species of animals can be found in the city. This biodiversity can be attributed to a number of factors, including the meeting point of two natural regions as mentioned before, as well as the location within two of the four North American migration flyways. Another very important source of biodiversity is the presence of wetlands. In Calgary, most wetlands are seasonal and may only hold water for a few months a year, but they still play an important role for habitat, breeding, as well as some other unsuspected ecological services. So, I believe that wetland ecology is part of your specialty, and it is something that you spent a lot of time working on when you were part of the staff of the city of Calgary. Uh, my question would be, we know that most of the pre-settlement wetlands that existed within the current limits of Calgary have disappeared, and something that you have mentioned in other interviews that you gave on the subject is that more people start to try to put a price on the ecological services we benefit from for things such as wetlands. I mean, we've all heard that money talks, so if it is what it takes to attract attention on the issue, then why not? So I was wondering if you could let us know about this work that was done in the particular case of Calgary. There was some work, actually. I dug up um, some work that was done in 2011 that was a pilot study of um, what's called the ecosystem services value of wetlands in eastern Calgary, so in the in the prairie zone. The study looked at, well, what are some of the economic values of of these wetlands in that area? And the numbers were pretty significant. This is in two thousand and eleven, so you know they're they're more than a decade old. Um, but you know, it's sort of estimated that, uh, to replace those wetlands, if they're lost, it would cost $338 million just to replace those wetlands. Um, the water storage of all of those little tiny pothole wetlands was more than the Glenmore Reservoir and, and Lake, uh, Chestermere Reservoir combined. It was an enormous amount of water. And if you think about that volume of water, the the role that it plays in purification of water through you know those sorts of things uh the value of having water on the landscape for not only agriculture but for native habitat is is immense um that it probably stored you know on an annual basis something like 16 or 17 million dollars worth of carbon uh was sequestered and protected in these areas um you know um Recreational value, I don't think they got into too much of that, but millions of dollars in recreational value for hunting, bird watching, uh, maybe not so much fishing, but all of those sorts of things that were important. It raised the value of houses in those areas. So there's, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of good data on those sorts of things. Um, I think one criticism of the ecosystem services approach is it is um, somewhat limited in its valuation of um, ecosystems in and of themselves. In my view, it, it breaks them down into purely economic units. 
Um, I, I, you know, I know there's been some recent criticism that they, they don't, uh, for example, fully incorporate indigenous values uh, and perspectives on why a landscape is important. But I think it serves a useful tool in terms of setting a relative value. Um, one of the things I did, uh, this would have been about 2016 or so, is we took a look at wetland loss um, between 1962 and uh, 2014 in the city of Calgary. And it was kind of interesting to, to go back and look at those numbers. But we had a, a 1962 inventory done of wetlands. We looked at historical air photos. And we had 3,848 hectares of wetlands identified in 1962. And if you go ahead, jump forward to 2014, and we did that same inventory, uh, we lost 43% of those wetlands. So we were down to about 16, just under 1,700 hectares of wetlands. So we lost over 2,000 hectares in that period of time. I think the number's a, a bit higher now. I wouldn't necessarily say there's a correlation here, but what was interesting was, I just just out of curiosity, we looked at, in 2014, how many stormwater management facilities were there in the city of Calgary? So stormwater management, in this case, means stormwater ponds. Those are the ponds you see in a lot of new communities. They're there to handle runoff, store water, uh, clean it, purify it, um, and then release it back into the Bow River. Um, so we had, uh, at that time, I think the, the, um, we lost 2000 hectares. We had, um, about 1900 hectares of stormwater wetlands built on the landscape. So in 1962, there probably weren't any stormwater ponds by 2014. We had 1900 hectares. That's almost a one for one replacement. Um, and if you think about what it would cost to replace that stormwater system, I, I would estimate the capital cost of the ponds and the pipes and all of those things that tie this enormous system together would be in the billions. So in, in my view, one way of looking at the value of wetlands is we, the wetlands were, were not where we wanted them to be. We got rid of them, then had to build storage and drainage systems to handle the runoff that would have been handled by those wetlands we almost replaced the entire area of lost wetlands with these ponds and it probably cost us several billion dollars. Uh, so, so there's a value right there. And, and, and I would say the benefit to us as, as citizens is we have a, a system that makes sure that our basements don't flood, that our, you know, our streets are dry and all of those sorts of things. Um, but I think what isn't really addressed there is all the other things that wetlands bring with them. Flood control is one thing, but I think when you look at biodiversity, all of the benefits that we get from having rich biodiverse habitats is gone. Um, I think um, the the other values, nature appreciation, spiritual values, all of those sorts of things as well, aren't so well replaced by a storm pond. Uh, so, so that to me is probably one of the stronger 
um, uh, ways of characterizing some of what we lost just with with uh, with wetlands. As we can see, if we employ the tools used to assess development projects in order to measure the value of ecological services provided by intact ecosystems, it quickly adds up to several hundreds of millions of dollars. More importantly, regarding the role of wetlands in regulating floods, the previous episode told us that the municipal flood mitigation strategy involves the creation of ponds, the same one that have been lost to development over the past few decades. The fact that the municipality tries to reincorporate nature within the city is a positive evolution, but the typical pattern is fragmented habitats turned into parks where species are limited in their ability to move, leading to a loss of species and genetic isolation. And even the parts that are preserved are significantly affected by the alteration of their surroundings and quickly lose their original character. Therefore, we must look into other tools to design policies and can have a meaningful impact. So when Katie Morrison mentioned the idea of National Urban Park, I felt that the idea was particularly interesting. Yeah, I think one of the tools that DPAWS is starting to work more on and, and the federal government is, is exploring um, how to enact is an urban national park. And so I know there are several Stupas chapters in cities across Canada that have been identified as potential areas for new parks. So it would be a federal management tool like a national park, but not like the national parks as we know them now, because an urban setting is quite different. But I think has that real potential to start looking at urban areas and at cities, as I said, as part of that landscape from a biodiversity perspective and creating opportunity for people who live in urban areas to experience nature and experience parks, you know, right sort of within the city or adjacent. Oh, that's interesting. I did not think about that solution in this context. Um, could you give a bit more details about what's being done in Canada with these kind of parks? I know one of the areas that sort of most advances the Rouge in Toronto, where They're sort of piecing together urban national parks, some private land conservation, and I think some agricultural land is involved in that, um, which is why it needs to look different, right? It's, it's not the wilderness that we think of it as national parks. It is that urban center. So it's it's got different land uses already. It's got a little bit of a different focus as far as how people use it, but still with that overarching frame or goal of conserving biodiversity and connecting people to nature. And so is the idea to take an area that is untouched, uh, for example, Nose Hill Park in Calgary, and add another layer of protection to ensure that it stays the same? Or is it for parts that are already urbanized, but with this new framework, we say no additional development in this part of the city? I, I think a bit of both. I think that um, depending on the location and you know, area that they're identifying. I think it is all of those things, which does make it a little bit complex, but I think it could be, you know, some areas that are currently undeveloped or, you know, as other things changing designation, but I think also, you know, acquiring new lands, looking at those development scenarios to make sure that development is staying out of some of those ecologically and socially important areas through a boundary designation and management within those. As of today, the Rouge National Urban Park 
is the first and only park of its kind in Canada. It recently came back in the news, following the debates surrounding another important case of urban sprawl in Canada, which are the proposed changes to the Green Belt in Toronto. The plan to open this area to development has been announced in December of 2022, and it is severely criticized by inhabitants, NGOs, and academics. But another important actor in this debate is the federal government, due to the proximity of the park. Here is an extract from an article by Environmental Defense about the Dauphin's Rouge Agricultural Preserve, or DRAP, which is a part of the Green Belt threatened by the new development plans. While protests, letters and petitions have had no effect on Premier Ford to date, Canada has a federal system of government, and the federal government has its own freestanding powers and obligations to protect these vital lands. Even if the Greenbelt and DRAP had never been established, the federal government's responsibility for matters like federal species at risk and federal lands, particularly the Rouge National Urban Park, means it would be obliged to prevent their destruction. Parks Canada has described protecting the DRAP lands from residential, commercial or industrial development as critical to the health and function of Rouge National Urban Park. Because of the close hydrological and ecological connections between the two, the provincial government's plan would likely destroy the habitat value of the park for many species. This shows how the creation of a national urban park in the region of Calgary could be an effective tool in order to limit the extent of urban sprawl. In August of 2021, the federal government unlocked a budget of $130 million to create a network of 15 national urban parks all around Canada by 2030. The most serious candidate is Saskatoon's Mewasin Valley, but Parks Canada is also exploring solutions in Winnipeg, Halifax, Windsor, Edmonton, Montreal, and Colwood in British Columbia. Eight other city homes for new national urban parks have yet to be identified. Could Calgary be one of them? In any case, it would only be at the condition that there are still intact ecosystems that are worth being preserved by the time it would happen. We now arrive at the point, as in the previous episode, where we wonder why does the city choose to preserve the status quo in terms of development strategy? with so many accompanying arguments in favor of preserving natural areas and stopping urban sprawl. Areas and stopping urban sprawl. But this time, instead of exploring the economic and urban planning aspects of that question, I wanted to ask my guests if, in their opinion, the problem wouldn't be rooted in incompatible visions of the world about the place of nature in our lives. With their combined extensive experience of advocacy and public service, I was hoping to get to the bottom of this complex question. I, I think um, the city's approach to conservation of nature um, has evolved and has improved. Um, it, it was definitely better um, when I left than when I showed up, um, put it that way. Um, you know, and, and the city has had, a, I think, a very good history of developing some fairly progressive policy. 
um, we became, I believe, the first municipality in the country to develop its own policy that required compensation for wetland loss. So there was no other uh, city in in the country that did that. There was there was provinces that certainly were. So we we've been very good at doing that. We we had a biodiversity strategy in 2015. Not the first city, but but you know one of few. So it, it, it's always been important and. You know, I think you can look at the history of um, parks and conservation and things like that in the city of Calgary, and there's there's always been a strong thread. You know, some people point back to events in the 60s becoming the, the rise of citizen activists that pushed for protection of parks in the city of Calgary. And there's a really good story. It's a, it's a whole other conversation about what led to ultimately the protection of what is now Prince's Island Park in downtown Calgary. In the 60s, the plan was to move the Canadian Pacific Railroad from where it is now on the Beltline on top of Prince's Island. Um, and there was a deal more or less done between the city and the CPR. Um, and it was citizens that sort of said, no, this is not something we want. And they pushed back and the whole issue died. Um, and that was, I think, a really good example of how um, engaged citizens can can change things for the better. So I think there's a long history of that, um, and and I think we've become more progressive in terms of identifying and and trying to to value and protect nature through development. I think we've become, um, you know, we 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 we're now much more rigorous in terms of uh, what we require for inventories, impact assessments, and all those sorts of things. I think the flip side of that is it's very easy to write policy. It's very difficult to actually do something with it. And um, if if you're going to do the sort of job I did, um, and in fact, I think this applies to, to any government uh, position, you have to be patient. Things never happen fast enough. And I think what we see is um, the... The implementation of these policies, no net loss of wetlands, um, a strategy for biodiversity, um, a whole bunch of things on connectivity of ecosystems within cities as they grow, is hampered by not very good legislation that gives us the tools to do what we need to do. So that means that in many respects, the the, the conversation is dominated by development um, and it is focused on development and it, it is still very much the case that in a lot of cases, the, the protection of, uh, important natural areas, sensitive ecosystem species at risk, what have you, is a bit of an afterthought. And I, that's, that is one of the challenges about how can you be Negotiation will only get you so far. Sometimes you need you need a certainty. You need a legislative certainty that says these areas should be protected. And we have some of those tools, but we don't have enough, in my opinion. And the fact that it is an afterthought or the difficulties to enforce those rules, it almost makes me feel, you'll tell me if I exaggerate, but it is almost like you're not speaking the same language, that there is a fundamental incompatibility. What do you think? Yeah. And in fact, um, that was, I remember making that observation once, um, 
around the planning table. You know, all these departments within the city, uh, transportation, transit, uh, the stormwater people, all of those, we all try to sort out how to, how a particular community is planned. And it had occurred to me one time that what, what, uh, the, the role I did is in planning for natural areas and the people, my colleagues that did the same job. There's some brilliant people that do this sort of work, uh, within parks is that we were, we were sort of the outlier because every department of the city that was there for planning was there to build something. They were there to see the roads built, the houses built, the pipes built. Um, even the parks planners who build our sports fields and our manicured parks were there to see something built. And we were the only ones that were looking at what was already there and what would be left. So, um, and so a lot of what we did was looking at how do we mitigate, minimize the impact of the new built environment that's being, that's being planned for. Um, and, and so it is very much a, a different set of values, um, that, um, you know, and, and, uh, someone who is proposing to build a subdivision is looking at the land as, uh, something that will yield a certain number of houses for them, a certain density. Um, and so some of the things that we might do to try to protect some of the significant areas takes away from that. And in fact, the terminology that you would often hear is that protecting of, of habitat was, was called sterilization. That, that they, they termed it as sterilizing the land. Um, when in my view it is, is entirely the opposite. Um, and I think also the, the issue of values um, comes into play in terms of how you plan and value specific areas of the landscape. Much of the prairie um, grassland in East Calgary has already been converted to, um, to agricultural land. So ecologically has fairly low value. Um, and there are certain assumptions that go into how those areas are developed. And as I had said earlier, there's not a lot of constraints to, to increasing growth because there are no hard barriers that, that, uh, slow us down in some ways. The challenge I saw is that, um, from a, a lot of the, the machinery of how a plan gets put together and how it gets built is that tame pasture, non-native grassland and wetland or riparian areas or native grassland are functionally the same. And they, they weren't valued any differently because we didn't have the ability or rarely had the tools to actually set these areas aside and protect them. So we, we didn't see them any differently. And as a result, we tended not to plan them any differently. Um, and that was the biggest challenge, I think, of, of the job was finding ways to recast and rethink the value of these systems, not as something that sterilizes a community, because it absolutely does not. I think the, the reason why people want to buy houses in these new communities that are on the Bow River or on you know, ravine systems is because they want the, that nature. And, and we almost have this, you know, the ridiculous scenario where we're fighting to protect something. We get some of what we would like. They put a house beside it and then they turn around and market the nature to sell the houses. 
Um, so, um, so yeah, the values, I, I think in terms of what's important are, are a bit out of whack and, and tying this back to ecosystem services is we're now starting to realize that these places provide other values to us that, that I think are more important than just having nature for the sake of nature, but because we, we need them to make the city livable. When you're looking at that sort of like development proposal um, uh, process, or, or if that's the frame uh, that we're doing this all in, then it's often just about mitigating. It's about, you know, like, we're still going to do it, but we're going to do, you know, change this little thing over here or do a little bit over there. Whereas really when you're, when you're looking at um, an, an impact and biodiversity um, halting and reversing biodiversity, the first, the first should be avoid. So um, if there are high areas of high biodiversity value, including native prairie, those, those should just be avoided. We can't, we can't mitigate our way out of every impact. Um, and so th there does have to be some framework. And I think that is part of it. There does need to be some framework for the city um, that allows those, allows those avoidance conversations, allows us to plan um, around the high value biodiversity areas, incorporating them where, where it makes sense as far as, you know, new parks or, or, or places like uh, like that, leaving those natural areas, although they also can't be islands. Um, but, you know, planning a city that is full of nature, that it, that nature is connected within the city and across the city. Um, and, and I think it comes back to one of that initial point of, um, of how we have thought about cities as being separate and for people and the nature is the thing over there. And I think really changing that, that frame of mind um, to the idea that a city is a place on the natural landscape, and certainly that means that there, you know, there will be places within a city that are not entirely natural. Um, but as much as possible, keeping the ecological integrity and the ecological function of cities, um, even even if we they are also places that that are urban. Um, and, and I don't I don't think we're there yet as 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 municipalities or as citizens in those places um, of really embracing that idea of being part of the landscape and part of the, the natural system. In conclusion of this episode, we have seen that the preservation of natural areas around Calgary is part of the general issue of the protection of the grassland and parkland natural regions, two parts of Alberta that are already significantly underprotected. We have also discussed how stopping urban sprawl in Calgary serves two purposes. Preserving important ecological features in the vicinity of the city, as well as maintaining the fragile but real sources of biodiversity that are already within the limits of Calgary. We are currently spending time and resources to create infrastructures that provide services that were already offered by the ecosystems that were lost to development. Tools exist, and strong policies are needed to provide an alternative to the current methods of including natural areas in Calgary, which result in fragmented areas with more aesthetic than protective purposes. In the previous episode, 
We discuss the economic and planning mechanisms that need to change to stop urban sprawl. At the end of this episode, we see that they must be accompanied by a profound rethinking of the relationship between nature and our cities. Without this, all we will get are policies that are performative, without real impacts, and inadequate in the face of the loss of biodiversity that we are facing on a global scale. In our next and final episode, we will discuss with Hal Eagletail, cultural consultant and member of the Sutina Nation. He will tell us how the settlement that became Calgary and its progressive expansion in the past century has affected the traditional activities of the Sutina Nation, based on their traditional knowledge and his personal experience. I look forward to having you join us for this important conversation about Calgary's future. Calgary, a sprawling obsession, is a podcast created as part of the 2022-2023 edition of the Canadian Wilderness Stewardship Program, managed by the Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society. I thank them for their support, advices, and motivation to help me to complete this project successfully. I also wanted to express my gratitude towards my excellent guests, Chris Menderson, Byron Miller, Francisco Alanis Uribe, Tricia Stadnik, Katie Morrison, and Hal Eagletail. A special thank you to Frisia for her unfailing support. And shout out to Nina Stone for her help with the transcription of the interviews. Music used throughout the podcast is from Olexi, Alexei Chistilin, Kai Engel, Plasticine Cowboy, Tristan Lohengrin, Olizna Raps, Andy G. Cohen, and Yiri Semshishin. You can find all the details in the description of this episode. If you are a Calgarian interested in questions around the environment and climate change and want to do something about it, there are lots of organizations that are welcoming new volunteers as well as donations. If you want some names to start your search, you can contact the Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society, the Calgary Climate Hub, or the Calgary Alliance for the Common Good. Please note that the ideas developed in this podcast are my own but don't necessarily reflect the vision of the organizations and people involved in this project. If you want to discuss or follow my other ventures, you can find me on Mastodon at Delaplane Productions at earthstream.social. Thanks again to all of you, and stay wild, Calgary.